We want you to be in the marketplace, that person where they say, Patrick, I see you everywhere. And so I've just got to talk to you because clearly you're the most active, you're the biggest, you're the most successful, you're everywhere. So I would do myself and my business a disservice if I didn't even know who you were. It's time! Work! Play! I want to connect the listeners to the best of the best. Welcome to the Evolve Broker Podcast. I'm your host, Pat Costello, the co-founder and principal at Evolve MGA. Our mission for the podcast is to bring the insurance industry the best of the best. In our fourth episode of our sales series, I spoke with an award-winning consultant, best-selling author, and speaking Hall of Fame inductee. My guest was Colleen Francis, and she was named the number one sales influencer to follow by LinkedIn. She was incredibly successful in her sales role for more than 20 years, and now coaches organizations and individuals to improve their performance. Her clients include industry-leading companies like Chevron, Experian, and Merck. I had the pleasure of speaking with her about the strategies that she includes in her brand new book called Right on the Money. Some highlights include specific tactics for salespeople on social media, using your downtime effectively, improving your sales velocity, optimizing data, and step-by-step directions for sales managers. Please download, subscribe, and leave a review on whatever platform you are listening on, and feel free to reach out to me at pat at evolvedbrokerpodcast.com with any comments or suggestions for the podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by First Insurance Funding. First is the leading premium finance company in insurance and is known throughout the industry for their personalized service and quote flexibility. If you're tired of sending quote requests for smaller premiums to multiple companies, not leaving enough time to negotiate larger opportunities, then choose First as your primary financing source and experience the first difference today. Without further ado, here's Colleen. Colleen, welcome to the Evolved Broker Podcast. Hey, I am exceptionally happy to be here, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Thank you for spending some time with me today. You have a new book coming out soon, and I would like our audience to get to know you a bit better and then go through some specific concepts that you mentioned in your new book. So if that's okay with you, I can kind of start diving into some questions. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Can you give me some background on your experience and what you do now? Sure. You know, I always laugh and say I came by sales honestly. I grew up in a household where my dad actually was a salesman and and a sales manager. So it was never a dirty word in our household, right? You know, like (laughs) every, every vacation we went on was because my dad was in sales. So I was also one of those kids um, as a result, though, that had to go door to door when we brought stuff home. Like my dad would not bring the chocolate bars or the poinsettias or the wrapping paper or whatever it was we were selling spices. I think one year Um, (laughs) I had to I had to door knock. (laughs) Yeah, I grew up in a really similar household. My dad was a retail insurance broker in the insurance industry, still is. And very similar. A lot of the vacations we went on were based around sales trips or or. reward trips for sitting, yeah. hitting certain goals. <laughs> exactly. 
And, you know, it was funny because when I, you know, I went to uh, university, I always laugh, I have a degree in, you know, politics and history. Um, it uh, wasn't a surprise, I don't think, to my parents, nor a disappointment that I went into sales. Um, and I was recruited by a life insurance company right out of um, university. We had a fantastic training program, six weeks sort of on campus learning uh, you know, everything there was to know about the products, but also about selling. Um, and then they put us out into the field. So my first couple of years um, as a professional salesperson, um, outside of the jobs I had going to putting myself through school was um, in insurance sales. Wow. Small world. I actually was yeah. not aware of yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I worked for London Life um, in Canada. We did uh, life insurance, health, uh, disability insurance, group RRSPs, those kinds of things. Or, or 401ks, I guess, it for, for the Americans in the audience. Retirement savings plans. And I left um, that world because I was moving across the country. I actually thought I wanted to get back into politics, um, spent a little bit of time poking around into some political circles, ran for my life. <laughs> I didn't want anything to do with that and hopped right back into sales. And uh, so then had a really great career through technology sales and decided I wanted to go out on my own um, around 20, ooh, it's been about 21 years. Um, yeah, 21 years now. Uh, decided that I wanted to uh, really help sales leaders and sales people be better at their craft. And that's yeah. where I am today. Yeah, that's awesome. You struck a couple chords with me because I am in the insurance industry and I went through a training program and you know I've worked with a lot of retailers. And so insurance sales has been very close to me. But I also live in the marina in San Francisco, and it's filled yeah. with tech salespeople. Um, <laughs> it is. So a lot of former roommates, friends, uh, acquaintances are all in the tech sales world. So I think we have a lot of points oh, yeah. that we can relate on. Absolutely. Okay, I know we only have about an hour, so I wanna dive into some concepts in the book. And in sure. the beginning of the book, you really talk about the new world of selling and how things are changing as we come out of the pandemic, which I think is so appropriate for the yeah. time that we are in. One thing that stood out to me so much was something called the triad tempo and how salespeople yeah. should be using social media. Can you break that down for our audience? Because I don't think a lot of really sales training yeah. ever focuses on social media. So I think this is really unique. Absolutely. So, you know, to take a step back, um, one step back anyways, as to why I created this is I found, I really found that a lot of sales leaders were saying things to me like, I don't want my sales team just wasting time on social media or wasting time in email or forums or online. They need to pick up the phone and make calls. Um, at the same time, we really noticed that uh, a a pure cold call, like when I was in insurance, it literally was open the white pages, if we remember what that is, and start calling. Oh, today feels mm -hmm. like an S day and just start calling. Those kinds of cold calls just weren't working at all. And there needed to be some kind of nurturing or, or warming up um, of the marketplace so that the phone call was effective. But I also wanted to balance that so that it wasn't hours a day that a salesperson was taking. So the triad tempo is really about building community um, and communicating your value three times a day on three different platforms. And some of that platform could be email. Um, for most of my sales reps who are in the corporate world, it's LinkedIn um, and Twitter and some form of company newsletter or forum or industry forum. 
um, doing three different things. And it's as simple as posting original content that either you or your company have created, um, sharing content that uh, might be from a third party, like a, um, a news source or um, a story from a magazine or something else that's posted that's relevant to your your uh, customer base. So an oil and gas client of mine, for example, posted, you know, a story about Tesla and their electric trucks or self-driving cars, things like that. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing is about sharing and commenting or um, asking questions on your client's own material or your prospect's own material so that they know that you're engaged mm -hmm. um, with them and they can see who you are and what you stand for and what you're doing. And you can continue to build that network. So when you finally pick up the call, they know who you are, right? <laughs> the goal is to be ubiquitous, right? Exactly, ubiquitous. Um, we want you to be in the marketplace, that person where they say, Patrick, I see you everywhere. And so I've just got to talk to you because clearly you're the most active, you're the biggest, you're the most successful, you're everywhere. So I would do myself and my business a disservice if I didn't even know who you were. Those are such simple instructions that I don't know of anyone using to better their exposure on social media. And it's so simple. It's the rule of three. Yeah. Three times a week, pick three platforms, put out original high value content, put out content from other sources. A lot of times I think in, in my world, I think newsjacking um, could be, relevant yep. here and then commenting Absolutely. or sharing um your clients or prospects articles or posts and making sure yeah. you do this three times a week so simple absolutely yeah it is and it has a compounding effect right so you know as as you start to do this more people follow you more people pay attention more people start to engage um, so then it becomes easier because you've got more access to better quality content that you can share and comment on. So mm -hmm. it works exceptionally well and very quickly. Another concept that you mentioned in the book that applies here is quality of interaction versus quantity. And yes. you mentioned vanity metrics and like, oh, you know, I want <laughs> a thousand followers on LinkedIn, but does that really matter? Probably not, right? No. It doesn't. I mean, for most of your um, the people listening to this podcast, it doesn't matter whether you have 30,000 or 1,000, as long as they're the people who either can buy from you or are advising people who can buy from you or who can refer you, right? So they have to be high quality people in your niche, let's call it that. Um, and I think that you know, tracking likes or tracking um, the number of followers is the completely wrong metric. We should be tracking, you know, how many people are engaging with you actively, how many people are reaching out and want calls or meetings, how many people are referring you, how many people are buying from you, how many people are picking up the phone and actually calling in or clicking on something on a website or taking the next step to engage with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And you broke it down in a really concise way by saying diversity of platforms, diversity of content, and relevance to your market. Those three categories will help you achieve that goal <laughs> of being ubiquitous. 
So. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting because as I was kind of playing with a lot of this, you know, a couple of years ago as as the genesis for the book was coming out, I remember I was standing in front of a group of very seasoned sales um, reps. They a lot of tenure in their industry. And one of them um, sort of just said to me, oh, you know, Colleen, the last time I checked, people buy from people. I paused for a second and I said to him, you know, you're absolutely right. And they still do. In fact, people are more important in the sales process than ever before. Um, it's, it's not as simple when I was in insurance, you know, the Holy grail was the referral, right? So Patrick would refer me to like one or two other people. I would go out, meet with them, you know, have a high likelihood of closing yep. today. Um, it's even the, the numbers, the people involved are tenfold, right? you're likely to get referrals to your business from people that you don't even know that you may have never met before, but who are engaged somehow with you on um, one of your platforms. And whether that platform, again, be LinkedIn or Twitter or a company newsletter or a podcast like this, I find in this marketplace, we just kind of never know where our next hit is going to come from. And so we have to be everywhere. Mm -hmm. You mentioned in the beginning of the book that we're moving from a sell to environment to a buy from environment. And you mentioned the Amazonification of sales, which I thought <laughs> was a really interesting point. Can you describe the Amazonification of sales? <laughs> Don't you love that word? I love I it. make it up. Yeah. I, I feel like I need to add it to the urban dictionary. <laughs> I agree. I totally agree. <laughs> you know, we've been talking about this for a while because it has been happening really slowly, right? Like there has been this, probably for five or seven years, there's been this conversation around how buyers are already partway through the sales cycle until they find us, you know, they see us before we see them. Um, sellers have less control than they ever had before. But when the pandemic hit, we went from like chugging along, you know, at 10 miles an hour to a hundred mile an hour change and boof, all of a sudden buyers were in control um, for a lot of reasons, you know, time, competition, um, scarcity of resources. And I think that it's, uh, you know, really important. The other reason why this has happened is because there are younger and younger buyers in positions of authority um, with money. Um, in the marketplace, and they have grown up digitally native. And as those people are moving into decision-making capacity, and as the rest of us, <laughs> as the older generations have realized because of the pandemic, hey, I can buy all this stuff online. We started to say, well, if I can buy you know, um, mic equipment for my business, and jeans, <laughs> and groceries online, why can't I buy insurance services? Why can't I buy new routers for my business? Why can't I buy software? Why do I need a salesperson when I didn't need it for 90% of the purchases that I have been making in the last couple of years? And, you know, Amazon leads the way there, right? So this yeah. is, we're just seeing this in all sectors of, of the economy right now. That's an amazing buzzword. I, I, I totally <laughs> think that it should be uh, put in the dictionary because it's real. So it is. And, you know, it's not even just in the um, the fact that maybe people can't buy from you online um, and that's fine. But the effect what I caught myself doing is it's the effect of the number of referrals. So, you know, if in the past you referred a restaurant in San Francisco to me, I'd be like, well, Patrick lives downtown. He knows where to go. So I'm just going to take his recommendation. 
But today, if I go online and I type in reviews for that restaurant and a thousand strangers have said it's mediocre to bad, I'm going to believe them, even though I know you. Mm -hmm. I'm going to look at those and go, Patrick must be crazy or something because all these people that I don't even know (laughs) think this restaurant is terrible. I'm not going to go there. Yeah. So Amazon has had this effect, right? And that's, that's a really good point that you bring up that you go into detail on in the book is the quantity of testimonials and reviews could be um, more important than just a few quality ones. Absolutely. You know, I, I caught myself doing this today. I was, you know, looking at a pair of jeans, like, Oh, only two reviews. I don't know. Like maybe they aren't very good. If there's only been two reviews, let me see if I can find other reviews. And so I searched for the pants on other websites to see if I could find more reviews because you know, the quantity of those reviews leads me to believe that more people have bought them, more people have an opinion, and that's starting to weigh on how buyers are making decisions, Mm -hmm. even in the business-to-business world, Mm -hmm. right? A lot of people are less inclined to um, improve their sales performance when they get off work in their downtime. And this is a big topic in the book, but I've noticed in building a company and doing sales that if I respond to someone at a time when they don't expect me to respond, AKA after 5 p.m. or on the weekend, it goes miles with that client or with that prospect. Can you talk about how salespeople can be efficient and optimize their downtime without you know, becoming workaholics that are just you know, looking at their phones 24 seven? Yeah, you know, it's, um, it is a fine line, right? Because I certainly don't want to be the person or I don't want to be thought of as the person who's advocating that we work 80 hours a week and that you have no choice but to work on weekends, because that's not what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I think it's time optimization. So years and years ago, my, um, my business mentor, Alan White said to me, there's no such thing as a work life and a home life, you have one life that you learn to integrate, right? And so just as if you might have to take some time off in the middle of the day to go have a dentist appointment, um, if the best time to reach your clients is that you know the emails are going to be read is, you know, at four o'clock on a Sunday, then take an hour on a Sunday and carve out those emails. And that we're seeing um, people do getting high responses by sending out, you know, just one or two emails late on a day on a Sunday or at least scheduling them to go out. I have a client who has young kids at home. Um, in the leasing business, and she uh, checks and responds into her LinkedIn uh, between eight and nine o'clock at night, just kind of as she's winding down, because she knows that's when she's going to get the best response um, from her particular client base. I have uh, clients who are building their prospect lists as they're on public transit coming into the office. So rather than um, doing nothing, uh, they're saying, I'm going to build, I've got a lead list that I need to build. And I'm going to do that while I'm sitting on the bus or the train coming into the office. It's downtime. But then when I get into the office, I'm ready to make those calls. Speed and anticipation are key to selling. A really important stat that you throw out is, the person that responds first will win 75% of the orders that come their way. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, I am shocked at how speed plays such a significant role. And in fact, we did um, a bit of a split test with a client in the exact same industry and found that the client who had a 
a service level agreement with between marketing and sales that said you had to respond within 48 hours versus one that had um, a lead response time of an hour. The one that had the response time of an hour had a 12 times better closing ratio than in 48 hours. And so it's, it's a, I, I truly believe it's because prospects are in this kind of wait, 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 hurry up mm -hmm. moment. I mean, we all are sort of last minute planning, even for long term. And so when they're ready to buy and they're on your website or inquiring or make a call into you, they are ready to go. And at that point, it becomes whoever can get me what I need the fastest is going to win the business. Yeah, I just went through this with a sign company, multiple sign companies that we are essentially bidding to put like our logo on the front of our office. And for whatever reason, I just had so much more respect to the person that was the, mo the, the quickest to respond and um, the one that took the most attention to figuring out exactly what we wanted and what we needed as quickly as possible. The, the ones that took 48 hours to respond, it was like, I've already moved on, <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yeah. You are looking for a sign in that moment. And so you're thinking about it and you're active. And so it's much easier for you to conduct business because it's top of mind. But frankly, 48 hours later, you have moved on. You have, you are, you have now other things you need to purchase for the business, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. Colleen, you talk about building multiple relationships with multiple contacts in your client and prospect organizations. Can you discuss why that's beneficial for sellers? Okay, this to me, if I could change one thing permanently in all of sales, it would be this one thing. <laughs> Let's get sellers out of this state of complacency where they want to only talk to the ideal stakeholder or the ideal buyer. And once they do, then they kind of glom onto that person and don't want to build multiple relationships at, you know, for fear or for complacency, I'm not really sure. Um, but the reality is, is whether you're doing this with your prospect or doing it with an existing client, nothing creates more value to you and to them than building out that network of at least four um, different stakeholders, let's call them that, um, inside that buying community. So, it, you know, we could look at this from a, from a prospecting standpoint, and also a customer retention standpoint, but your buyer is not gonna make a decision, let's just talk about prospects, in isolation anymore, right? Um, it's it's a risky marketplace for uh, you know a lot of reasons, and nobody is gonna make that decision in isolation, no matter how small the organization is. We're an organization of three, and I don't make decisions in isolation even. I always turn to either my partner or someone on the outside and say, what would you do? What would you think? Do you know this company? And so you owe it to yourself to figure out who those people are inside the client's organization or the advisors they're working with to build relationships so that when you're buyer goes to them and says, Hey, I want to do business with Patrick. What do you think? Oh, Patrick is awesome. We see him all the time. I follow him on LinkedIn. I follow him on Twitter. And if they do that five or six times inside their own company, then the person you're selling to has the confidence to do business with you. Yeah. I think it makes that relationship so much stickier as well, because when you just have, just have one point of contact, it's very easy oh. to eliminate the relationship and move on when you feel like you have a few more um, connections with that company. Well, absolutely. So 
interestingly, a client of mine in the software business found through some analysis that when they're selling um, and their products sell for about $100,000, let's say. So when they are selling to less than four people in the organization, they have around a 25% closing ratio. When they sell and include four people or more inside that organization, their closing ratio jumps to 45%. Wow. I mean, that's a huge jump, right? Um, and they're only getting better at it. Yeah. From a retention side, I can't tell you how many people have lost business because they didn't see it coming. You know, they've got this one great relationship, a COO or a VP, and they think, oh, it's all locked up, man. You know, I got the COO. No one is going to um, toss me out, the VP of HR. And then that person quits or gets fired or there's a merger and acquisition and you've got nobody in the organization fighting to keep you, right? Everyone's like, well, I don't know who Colleen is. You know, may as well bring in your own people. You're never going to lose so, that relationship by having too many good relationships there. Never. I have never, ever, ever seen it in my, God, I don't even want to admit, 30 plus years of selling. I've never seen anybody lose a piece of business because they have too many relationships. Yes, yes. <laughs> So, Absolutely. So. so obviously as sellers, we're trying to make connections with clients and prospects. We're trying to get on, on their radar, whether it's email, social media, phone calls, face-to-face -face meetings. And a lot of this contact can potentially feel like pressure or might be frustrating for prospects or clients. How do we come off like an insider as opposed to like a stalker? when we are looking to get <laughs> yeah. on these people's radar. <laughs> it is funny because I did, uh, I have written about this. In fact, I think I have an article titled the fine line between persistence and stalking. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So there's a number of, of different ways to do this. Um, one mixing up the media. So it's definitely stalking. Like if you took the tempo triad and said, I'm going to do what Colleen says, but I'm only going to make phone calls. Yeah. You'd be stalking. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. But if you're mixing up the media and people see you in different places, they consume and interpret um, those outreaches differently. And so it doesn't feel overwhelming to them. So mixing up the media is really critical. Um, two, helping to mix up the messages and the value messages, right? So again, if you looked at that tempo triad and said, hey, that's a great idea, Colleen, but I'm gonna change it and just go three times a week to a client asking them for the business, yeah. That's, that's stalking. You're not giving them any value. Yeah. Um, I, I grew up in sales using, um, being taught a sales methodology that taught us no free consulting. You never give away anything for free because then, you know, you'll never win the clients. They'll never pay you. And in fact, the complete opposite is true right now. Uh, we have to give away so much value for free that people could learn from us. Um, by reading our articles, our analysis reports, um, our tips, our tricks, so that they're now saying, my God, I've learned so much from Patrick for free. Just imagine what will happen to my business if I start paying him. But if you don't give that high value, and that, you know, it could be a one sentence or, or two bullet points or an entire white paper, if you're not giving away that value to them, then they can't make a decision about whether or not you can help them or not. I couldn't agree with you more. And that is one of the primary reasons why we started this podcast was to just to see how, see what ways we could bring more value to the folks that we work with on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you can, if you can add value in helping them grow their business, 
then you know they're going to reward you by bringing them business right mm-hmm. there is some reciprocity there and refer you to others they're saying you know they're likely referring you to people hey you got to listen to the evolve podcast mm-hmm. um who might not be clients now but they get to know you through the podcast and then they either refer you or they can buy from you mm-hmm. as well yeah i like what you said as well about mixing the media but also not just going and propositioning your client for the business in in every single interaction bringing value is so key and it's so easy to do it in such simple ways. Um, you know, whether it's just writing an insightful comment on a client's post, like that client is posting that for a reason because they want people to see it and they want people to interact with it. So you're not coming off like a stalker when you are, you know, giving them some feedback that's honest and transparent and, um, that they might enjoy and might start a conversation. Absolutely. It's funny because the biggest pushback I get when we encourage clients to use this approach is, yeah, but Colleen, if I'm like commenting on their posts, they're going to think I'm a stalker. Like, isn't that creepy? Like they're posting it on social media. If they didn't want to be seen or heard by anyone, they would not be on these platforms. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The opposite is true. When they see you there, they think, oh my gosh, someone's paying attention to me. Someone loves me. (laughs) And if what you're delivering can be insightful or can add value um, and they can learn from it, then they're going to, the the relationship is enhanced, right? Mm -hmm. So the wrong way to roll this out is the minute you connect with someone is to send them, Hey, I can help you in your business, Mm -hmm. right? Are you interested in this? It's instead to show value, continuing to post. I, I always laugh and say, you know, people, people could come to my website, um, and read my articles, watch my LinkedIn lives, see my videos. And if they implemented what they learned, they would have a wildly successful sales career without having paid me a dime. Right. Yeah. I mean, you literally could, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, <laughs> I would encourage you to buy my book. <laughs> there you go on Amazon. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, but you really could, um, it just take everything that I publish for free and, and have an exceptionally successful sales career. Um, but that's the biggest driver of leads and business into our business, right? It's the only way people can find me and understand uh, what I do. When they when when leads come to me now, they say, like, we understand, we, we know what you stand for. We like the way you advocate teaching. We really love this article and want you to implement it in our business. Um, this resonated with me because we're going through that. So they're learning from it, but they need help implementing. And I think every business could do that. Mm-hmm. It's the world we live in. There's too much good content out there on the internet and information for people to use and learn from. And uh, as yeah. salespeople are looking to improve their performance, another point that I'm a big fan of that you went through in the book was getting really scientific about sales velocity, excuse me, sales velocity and the different steps associated with that equation. Can you talk about what sales velocity is and how you can optimize an individual component to make sure that you are performing at your highest levels? Absolutely. So sales velocity is kind of the anti-vanity metric, right? (laughs) It's the the antidote to vanity metrics. It's four metrics that are the most important for any seller um, and sales team um, to measure. And it's simply a formula where you take the number of opportunities that are in your pipeline right now, um, multiply that by the average value of those opportunities. So some of my clients do that in dollars, some in margin, some in volume, based on what they're selling. 
multiply that number by your closing ratio as a percentage. So 35%, 25%. And if you don't know your closing ratio, use 35. Um, that's about average for most industries um, right now. And then once you have that, you divide that by the average time it takes you to close a piece of business. So from the minute it becomes an opportunity in your CM, CRM to the time it closes. So 90 days, 109 days, whatever that looks like. What you're left with is a dollar figure or a value. Um, and that value is what you are worth to the organization. How much money you're bringing in in sales, how much volume you're bringing in your product or margin every single day that you're working. Actually, that's wrong. Every single day, period. Because CRMs mm. don't calculate weekends and holidays. Yep. So you get a number. If that number is $1,000, that means that you are going to contribute $365,000 um, to the company over the course of that year. Okay. So it's a fantastic measurement to not just look at once, um, but to actually track on a monthly basis because what it's saying is if your pipeline stays exactly the way it is today for the rest of the year or you know in a 12-month period or a 30-day period, this is exactly what you will contribute to the organization. And you can decide, is it enough um, or right on? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Data is key and making sure you're aware yeah. of your standing with a given metric I think is really key. Obviously, we don't want the yeah. vanity metrics, but... No. You advocate for being a micromanager when it comes to data <laughs> and micromanaging has maybe like um, a bad taste when people say it or people think about it. <laughs> but can you talk about micromanaging data and how it can really benefit you? Absolutely. I love talking about micromanaging because it is controversial and people do like to yell at me about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's because we're confusing micromanaging and nagging, right? I'm not a big advocate of nagging. Yeah. Um, so here's here's what happened. I was working with two different companies at the same time, and both of the sales VPs said, you know, oh, I don't need to pay attention to the data. I don't need to micromanage my guys. Um, they're experienced. They know what they're doing. And, you know, sure as anything, um, the wheels fell off, right? It, it, you know, at the end of quarter one, results weren't where they were supposed to be. And the manager's like, I don't know what happened. I didn't see this coming. Like, well, maybe we should have been paying attention to the data. Um, and... Uh, if they didn't, they got fired um, because the owner of the business or the, you know, the president of the business is not going to tolerate a sales VP who has no idea what's going on, comes to them with a rosy picture every quarter and then crashes and burns and doesn't have any visibility. Right. Mm -hmm. So micromanaging the data means either you as an individual or your manager or both of you are paying attention to the data on an everyday basis. Um, some of my clients have real-time sales velocity calculations built into their CRMs so that the sales rep can see if they're trending in the right direction towards the end of the year or if they're trending the wrong way. Um, sales managers who are smart really work hard with their sales teams to understand exactly you know, what's in the pipeline, the probability of close, what needs to happen, how long it's been in the pipeline, and if it's trending towards... Um, you know, something that's uh, outside of normal. Um, I have clients that know specifically, um, for example, in the days of stage where it starts to get past an average to a certain point where they know it's lost. Um, they know it's lost because they're paying into it close to 
closely to the data and they see that the push counter, as we call it, you know, when you your close date has shifted five or six times and they know that generally after the fourth or the sixth time, it has a zero probability of closing. And so they can help their sales rep kind of level set their pipeline uh, because they're paying such close attention to that data. When the, when the pandemic started, a client of mine said, Colleen, we never let a good pandemic go to waste. And they started <laughs> looking at their data three times a day. That was overkill even for me. They're like, what does it look like uh-huh. in the morning? How is it tracking at noon? And how's it tracking at the end of the day? Because they knew things were changing so quickly that they had to be on top of it. Yeah, that's an amazing perspective. That's a glass half full perspective on the pandemic for sure. <laughs> yeah. I got to say, Colleen, yeah, crazy. the sales management section of the book may have been my favorite part. It really hit home for me in a lot of ways. And there was a couple controversial, like maybe outside seemingly controversial points but you backed them up so well. And one of them was about how sales managers don't necessarily need frontline experience. And I was actually yeah. just talking to a buddy about this because we were, he was kind of debating if you know his manager should be in that position, but he didn't have the frontline experience. I really liked your thought process here. Can you talk about why you think that sales managers do not need frontline experience? I got to tell you, I have done a complete 180 on this in my career because I would never have had this position uh, six or seven years ago um, until I started working with some very sophisticated and high-performing sales teams who routinely hired managers from uh, non-sales positions. Um, And it's because they were hiring exceptionally good coaches. And then I started to look at um, other high-performing organizations like um, uh, sports teams and recognize that some of the highest-performing teams and highest-performing coaches, those coaches never spent a minute on the field. Or maybe they played like, you know, elementary school football, Uh (laughs) high school football, but they certainly never played in the pros, right? Right. Um, And so I started to realize that the skill of selling is something that an outsider can learn uh, and understand. But what is much more important um, in a sales leader is the willingness and ability to coach. Um, a, a willingness and an ability to work alongside a salesperson and not be the hero, right? Sometimes the best salespeople becoming managers is a huge problem for the organization because that seller really wants to be in sales. And so they default to selling. They sell around their their reps. Um, They don't want their reps to be better than them. Um, And so they compete. Um, We see them acting, I call them helicopter managers, uh, where they have to swoop in and close the deal because that's how they feel that they're the most worthy um, to their company. And we don't see that kind of competition um, or a helicopter managering with people who've come from the outside because they know that their role is to make every single person on that team the best person possible at the job. The sports analogy is outstanding because there are so many examples of all-star <laughs> players that tried to be coaches and it didn't work out. Like the ones that come to mind oh, immediately. Man. Wayne, like, cause you're a hockey fan, Wayne right? Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Magic Johnson, Isaiah Thomas, the list goes on. Like, I, I really like how you describe sales managers as coaches because yeah. I, I truly believe that that is the case. And you mentioned some 
coaching tactics that sales managers can take, what should a sales manager focus on when they're coaching their sellers? Yeah, there's a, there's a few things here. Um, so first of all, I believe that coaching needs to come in multiple forms. So, you know, there's one-on-one coaching, which is critical for pipeline and deal coaching. There's team coaching where you bring the team together um, and, you know, share ideas and, and you have them learn from each other as well as you. Uh, there's ride-along coaching where you're in the field with them or in a virtual environment like this, actually watching what they're doing so that you can coach to the actual behavior, not the behavior that the sales rep reports back to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so those three formats are really important. And then it's also incredibly important to coach to the pipeline. So most sales managers default to deal inspection or deal coaching because it's exciting. Tell me what I can do to help you close the deal, right? What are you going to do for me to close this deal? Mm-hmm. And they want to know what's coming but they don't pay attention to that front end of the pipeline on what's happening to put deals into that pipeline. Mm -hmm. And so that pipeline coaching is, is critical. And the tactics that we talk about are always starting your coaching by saying, here's your results to date. Here's where you need to be. So here's either the positive or the negative gap. And then the coaching becomes, what do we do to continue the momentum? If there's, you know, if you're ahead, what do we need to do to fix the gap if you're behind? Mm-hmm. To all the and then of course holding them accountable. <laughs> totally, to all the agency owners, sales managers, folks that want to be sales managers, or folks that um, are are putting a sales manager or maybe promoting someone into a sales management position. Colleen's book goes into extremely specific detail about how sales managers should schedule their time with sellers throughout the month um, in specific increments in what specific questions should be asked and what metrics should be identified in those meetings. I loved how um, strategic you were about these meetings and all all the data that you thought about. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, it it doesn't get said very often, but ultimately a poor performing sales team is the responsibility of the manager, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we all, again, we see this in sports. A professional team goes three or four games, you know, without a point or without a win. And those managers are fired, right? The only sport this doesn't seem to apply to is Formula One. (laughs) Those team (laughs) principals seem to stick around no matter how bad their teams are doing. (laughs) I think they're they're the anomaly. We don't, we don't build businesses based on the anomaly. Mm Totally yeah, true. I think, I think sales leaders are probably the most undertrained um, leaders in the organization, right? They just don't seem. I think business owners, agency owners, seem to think that well, because you were a good salesperson, you'll know how to coach. Well, just teach the team how to do what you did, mm-hmm. and that's not intuitive. Um, that's how Gretzky failed. Like, how do you teach someone to be? unconsciously competent you can't teach someone to skate to where the puck is going like that doesn't make any sense right and so we see that and some of the best salespeople that have been promoted to coaches i get on coaching calls with them and they say things to their team like well the problem is you're not closing enough deals so close enough deals and the poor sales reps like but i'm trying i don't know how and the manager can't you know they don't know how to dissect and ask the right questions because they haven't been trained to do that because the owner of the business thinks, well, you were a good salesperson. So just teach them to do what you wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. Our personality profiling consultant would 
totally agree with what you're saying because he's got like different yeah. personalities built out for sales management, different personalities built out for sales. And then you, you look at the Michael Jordans of the world. Um, how's Michael Jordan going to teach someone else how to be Michael Jordan when, you know, he has these inherent abilities and he has this exactly. work ethic that no one can match. It's, it's not yeah. transferable. It's not. And, you know, they are completely different personalities. If you think about it, a, a top performing salesperson has to be, you know, fairly impatient, very persistent, um, and not a team player. They don't really have to be a team player it, with like the rest of their team, right? They're kind of like gymnastics, you know, they all have their own specialties. Um, whereas a, um, a sales leader, a good sales leader has to be patient, um, and they have to be a team player. They have to believe that bringing the whole team up is the best way for success. Whereas an individual performer just has to think about themselves. Mm -hmm. And not everyone can make the leap. Not everybody wants to make the leap. And I think a lot of salespeople should be really honest with themselves and say, like, do I really want to take responsibility for the whole team? Or do I just want to take responsibility for myself? Because some people are better off just focusing on themselves. They are. They, that, that's where they Absolutely. would succeed in the organization. And they should yeah. be in that role and they shouldn't necessarily be in a managerial position. And they shouldn't be ashamed of that. Right. Or embarrassed by that. Right. Right. Um, and organizations should recognize that um, it's actually not a bad thing. And we see this all the time for top performing salespeople to make more money than the sales manager, even in some cases. Right. Mm -hmm. But you know, if I, I think, I think you really need to have a heart to heart with a salesperson who says they want to be a manager, if they're an exceptionally good salesperson and be honest about what the expectations are and what the job actually is. Because I think, um, I think some of those people would probably say, Ooh, that's not really what I want. I, I thought I wanted it because it's because of the cachet, right? I want to be a leader. I think I want to be a leader, but yeah. really the work is not what they want to do. The power is, is alluring. You know, it is right. The, the sure. power is alluring, but once like, just like for growing our business and like having to sit in all these different seats, it's like, it's many times not <laughs> what you expect it to be. It isn't. I've said to salespeople before who want to be leaders and, you know, I'm not trying to talk them out of it, but I just, to give them a picture, I said, look, you have kids, right? And they're like, yeah, you know, like, so how would you feel if I wanted to, if I said to you, look, I'm going to put you in charge. You're now going to coach the five-year-old boys soccer team. Mm -hmm. They're like, are you kidding me? I, who would want to hurt those cats? I'm like, oh, well, that's what you're signing up for. Uh -huh. So uh -huh. if you don't want to coach your five-year-old soccer team, then don't come in and yeah. work with this team because you've got that plus the diva. <laughs> exactly. People issues. It's, it's people issues. It's egos. I mean, especially in the sales world. It's lots of uh, yeah. unique, highly competitive personalities uh, that are, are, are very fun. It's just, you know, you're, you are oh, the yeah. captain of directing that energy and that ship. And um, it's not always a, a simplistic task. It isn't. And in fact, um, you know, probably the best book I've ever read. Um, and sorry, I cannot remember his name, but uh, it will be easy to Google on you know writing the ship and getting you know building a culture of accountability was written by a former US naval commander who was given the worst performing submarine in the US Navy and he turned it into the best performing submarine in the US Navy and he, it's all about accountability and coaching it's an incredible book that i think all 
sales leaders uh, should read. Yeah. I just yeah. wish I could remember the name of it. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. Um, well, uh, another, maybe one of the final points I just wanted to touch on because I just heard a sales rep talking about this and that sales rep was directed to include a probability of close ratio into okay. every deal that they were working on. And the the person I was talking to was like, I have, I honestly don't know if, if this is going to close or not. It's very hard for me to gauge, but I'm forced to put in, oh yeah, we, it's a, you know, 75% chance that's going to close. And in your book, you talk about how these probability ratios are not valuable and they don't no. benefit the data that you're looking at as a whole. Can you discuss that? Yeah, so we, I actually go into this a lot in my first book, Nonstop Sales Boom, um, where I believe that you shouldn't have a probability to close because that's a highly subjective um, term. What you should have is a percentage of the work or the pipeline complete. So, you know, if you've just had a first meeting, you've done 10% of the work, right? right? Like the if steps. If you've delivered a proposal, yeah, exactly. If you've delivered a proposal, you've done, you know, 60 or 70% of the work um, because, you want, what you want from a sales manager and a, and a metrics then is to start to measure the success based on where you are um, in the sales cycle in an objective way. So, you know, I always laugh and I say to my clients, so let's set this up as a, um, as a percentage complete in the pipeline. And then at a certain point, whenever we decide that pipeline is qualified, so maybe you're 50% through, then let's just apply a standard closing metric to that at 35% and actually see how many of them start to close and we can measure them more successfully. Then you can create a very objective measurement um, of how many close. So, you know, it's really funny because I was working through a sales VP yesterday who's taking um, more of this tact, whereas the sales reps are applying all these probabilities. And he said, I take what they put in our CRM and I divide it in half. So, you know, um, so he's like layering on 50% uh -huh. on top of their probability because he just doesn't believe it because yeah. they're all object. They're totally subjective. Totally. Right. Yeah. And so it's much better to build a pipeline where you have very discrete steps. It doesn't have to be a lot of them, but, you know, very discrete steps with very clear um, activities, objectives, behaviors that have to be completed in all of those steps. So what's required at the end is you can say, I have completed all of these things and the client and I are in a position to move it into the next stage. Then you've got the sales rep working incredibly objectively at moving through this pipeline and you can start to apply um, metrics based on the closing rates then. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. And um, I, was just, <laughs> it does. I was just hearing this conversation uh, with one of my buddies and it was like, this is just completely made up and if someone's well, it, judging this it it's is. like they're, they're coming to conclusions that probably don't make any sense it is and you know you can um, as a sales leader and a sales rep you can um, identify certain things that will lead to a higher probability like the first thing I do is look at an opportunity and say you know are you talking to more than one decision maker um, or a stakeholder. And if the answer is no, then it increase, it, it decreases the probability that it's going to change on a, a you know, very um, objective basis, right? Yeah. Um, how long has it been? Is it, if, how long has it been in the pipeline? If your average selling day is 
90 and you're now at 150 days, all of a sudden, it, it has a very low level of probability, right? So there are some objective measures, but they're all based on these discrete steps um, and whether they've been completed in the pipeline. That sounds good. Well, Colleen, I know we are coming up I love to the, data. <laughs> the hour here. I love the data too. I love how you get really scientific about it um, to figure Thank out you. which category you need to optimize to then improve overall performance. But as we move to the end of the hour, we always like to finish with five rapid fire questions that you can answer as short, or you can maybe have a little bit more length with some of them if you want to provide okay. some background. Uh, we have them laid out. And so if you're ready, I can jump in. Yeah, sure. Okay. What is your favorite sales movie of all time? Glengarry Glen Ross. All right. All right. Nice. <laughs> nice. Um, okay. Obviously, you are Canadian. Do you have yes. a favorite hockey team? Because I know you mentioned Wayne Gretzky in the book. Uh, is there a hockey team that is your team? My team is the Vancouver Canucks. Oh, cool. Cool. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. That's the team I grew up watching. <laughs> I, I, uh, my brother was neighbors with a guy on the LA Kings that just got traded to the Montreal Canadians. Canadians. And, uh, yeah. So we're considering going up for a trip. So I've, I've, I've been to Vancouver, but I haven't been to Montreal. So it could be interesting to oh, uh, make a trip up there. It's the greatest, greatest, greatest hockey um, city. Ideally go when they're playing against Toronto. Okay. Uh, because the rivalry is so big that pretty much the entire third period, nobody sits down. It is loud and obnoxious. That is <laughs> a super phenomenal fun. recommendation. <laughs> I will make yeah, sure. It's fantastic. I'm going to have a conversation with my brother about that to uh, make sure we plan that trip correctly. Yeah. Uh, okay. If you could pick one thing to sell right now, what would it be? <laughs> oh wow that's a good one um probably uh this is gonna sound crazy but uh probably fertilizer <laughs> really how come <laughs> yeah well it's an industry i know um because it's on fire right now uh -huh. i mean farmers are there's just uh, going to be um due to, due to world circumstances um a huge need for food um, and fertilizer. And um, these guys just can't even keep up. Um, and, and the world needs to grow a lot of food this year based on the fact we're losing a lot of highly arable farmland. So I believe that these guys are doing humanity um, a great service. Uh, they're also helping farmers. <laughs> uh -huh. And um, there's, a, there's a great opportunity uh, for the sellers in this market who have struggled for a lot of years. So that's so interesting that you bring that up because I just listened to a Joe Rogan podcast with sad guru who was talking about the topsoil issues. Like the, the primary reason he came on Joe Rogan's podcast was to, to discuss soil. Yeah. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's problem <laughs> seems to be a very relevant issue right now. Uh, so that is a really good it answer. Is. <laughs> okay. If you had to, pick a specific insight in your new book that you think is the most important insight that someone should take away from reading it, what would you pick? Well, I would pick the main insight. So title of the book is right on the money. We talk about companies being right on the money and it's about balancing customer centricity and this sales velocity. 
So the best companies are actually looking internal and external at the same time. They're focusing on their metrics while at the same time meeting the customer where they're at. And that takes a balancing act because generally companies or sellers have been good at one or the other. Final question for you, Colleen. Okay. What is the toughest sale that you've ever made? The toughest sale I have ever made professionally. <laughs> um, you can go personally too if you want. <laughs> that would be a hard one to, to think about. <laughs> um, the first, the one that comes to mind though was this sale that I made um, to the U.S. Air Force um, because it was really long um, and it involved selling to major, I'd never really sold anything this complex before where with this many moving parts and to get all of these major commands um, on side and then, you know, to sell it up to General Woodward at the time um, was very, very challenging um, and took, I don't know, 18 months or, or something like that. But, but it was it was a great learning experience because I learned the power of building multiple contacts. I learned power of the ultimate decision maker. Um, you know, I learned the power of trying to harness <laughs> people and build consensus um, amongst all of these decision makers. But man, it was tough. Mm. I can only imagine selling to the government. I've never been in a position yeah, where I needed to do that. So is it different from selling to private enterprise? It is. Um, it's much slower um, and it can change, you know, for political reasons, um, based on nothing you can control, right? Like, I mean, in a whim, you have an election or um, a government change. I mean, you know, pol office politics are one thing, but real politics getting in the way of sales is a whole other ball game. Yeah. It takes huge amounts of patience, uh -huh. huge amounts of patience and a whole different breed of salesperson. Wow. <laughs> Such an inter interesting perspective. Well, yeah. Colleen, we are at the end of the hour. I truly appreciate you spending the time with me. You are a uh, renowned author, sales trainer, speaker. If someone was listening to this and they wanted to have you come speak at an event or they wanted to access some of your training or they wanted to get your book, where is the best place they can find you or find your book? So the easiest place to find me is on my website, engagedselling.com. Um, we have our book uh, listed there under library and resources. Um, of course, it's always available on Amazon. Yep. Is everything available on Amazon? <laughs> or <laughs> most of your favorite booksellers. Um, and the other easy place to find me is on LinkedIn. I'm incredibly active on LinkedIn. And uh, all you have to do is uh, search my name. Uh, and I'm more than happy to have you follow me or connect with me and have you learn from me. Cool. Well, I highly recommend that everybody that's listening to this goes out and gets Colleen's book right on the money. Uh, I truly enjoyed it and I was blown away, blown away uh, by uh, many of the points in there. And I thought it was a perfect sales book for coming out of the pandemic and selling in the new world of technology, social media, uh, dealing with uh, complex organizations in that uh, buy from environment. Yeah. That's th those are things that I haven't read in any other sales training book to date. So I thought uh, it was really impressive. So thank you again, Colleen. I look forward hey, to my pleasure. speaking with you soon. Thanks so much, Patrick. It's been a great uh, hour. I hope uh, to hear from you and uh, your listeners again. Sounds good. Thanks, Colleen. 
please download, subscribe, and leave a review on whatever platform you are listening on. And feel free to reach out to me at pat at evolvedbrokerpodcast.com with any comments or suggestions for the podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by First Insurance Funding. First is the leading premium finance company in insurance and is known throughout the industry for their personalized service and quote flexibility. If you're tired of sending quote requests for smaller premiums to multiple companies, not leaving enough time to negotiate larger opportunities, then choose First as your primary financing source and experience the first difference today. 